0: We are probably losing billions of dollars a year in productivity because people can't really rely on public transit in their neighborhoods. We started Dollar Ride in 2018 to help people who lived in transit deserts find dollar vans to get to school or to get to work. I wanted to build a technology platform that brought the Uber and Lyft user experience to the dollar van ecosystem here in New York. If we can make accessing dollar vans more transparent and smoother for riders, not only can we do good in the world, but this is actually a solution that would work in other geographies where there are similar informal transit networks.
1: Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former private equity investor, Forex founder, climatech, CEO, Coach Duke, and UNC professor... An occasional monk, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips and wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like this content and you're a growth stage, CEO, founder or investor in climate tech, then check out our private peer groups at entrepreneursforimpact.com. As the only community like it in North America, Our members represent over $10 billion of market value or capital aimed at for-profit solutions to the climate crisis. Building a climate tech company can be very challenging and lonely, but it doesn't have to be. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Sue Sani. Co founder and CEO of Dollar Ride, a mobility company for communities underserved by public transit. In addition, Sue is also a venture partner with Republic, a fellow with Visible Hands, and former co founder and CEO of We Did It, an online fundraising platform for nonprofits. In this episode, we talked about what a transit desert is and how it costs us billions of dollars in lost productivity annually. The $10 million award that Dollar Ride won recently from the state of New York. Their solid customer traction with over 15,000 riders in just one year. How his solution relates to the broader micro mobility field. His origin story and the inspiration for this business moving from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles. How their business is evolving from an Uber-like tech platform to an asset financing model to make EV purchases easier the process by which they retrofit commercial vehicles from internal combustion to electric vehicles, why it's so important that he walks his kids to school for an hour each day, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy it, and please give Sue a shout-out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Sue Sani, what a name. Sue Sani here, S-U-S-A-N-N-I for listeners co-founder and CEO of Dollar Ride.
0: Welcome to the pod. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat today. So uh, I appreciate the time. You're here. So I want to start off by reminding
1: uh, listeners of two really cool milestones or or kind of benchmarks for your all's progress at Dollar Ride. One of those is that uh, within a year of launching in just one neighborhood in New York, you guys have over 15,000 users of your, of your service bringing better mobility solutions to underserved communities in terms of public transit. And then I guess you're getting noticed, right? Since you all just won this, uh, this award from New York State, this uh, clean uh, transportation prize with 10 million bucks of grant money with, uh, you know, a few expectations <laughs> tied to that money. Pretty big, pretty big milestones, kudos in a short time, Sue. So what, uh, what do you think are some reasons why Things have kind of hit or clicked so well for Dollar Ride. Thank
0: you, Chris. I think we are at a really interesting time right now where there's a tremendous amount of momentum and tailwinds around the types of services and things that Dollar Ride is doing. So for one, our, our federal government is really investing a ton into our, our country's clean energy transition. So projects and companies that, Can do anything that accelerates our adoption of clean energy, electric vehicles, the installation of charging infrastructure, those things are getting a lot of attention. And fortunately, Dow Ride was already at the cusp of that type of innovation. And then secondly, which is really more akin to like the reason why I started the company and was pretty obvious when you when you look at me and the rest of our team, then that has to do with like transit equity and providing equity in disadvantaged communities. You know, I started Dollar Ride because I grew up in areas of New York City that were severe transit deserts. My family, you know, has owned commuter van fleets for nearly three decades. So I, I learned a lot from like the business angle of how to run a small business that delivers transportation to the public. But where this is all coming full circle is that from a government level and even some investors, folks are recognizing that you know, you have to bring disadvantaged communities or underserved populations into this new future along with the rest of the country. So Justice 40, for example, you know, that initiative is an example of this. And, you know, Dollar Ride, I think, has always kind of flown that flag ever since we started four years ago. But now in combination with providing electric vehicles and charging stations to the fleet owners that we serve, we're getting a lot of attention. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the future.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. This is maybe one of the first times we've talked about a transit desert and transit equity on the podcast. Can you give us more background on, on why these
0: deserts exist? Absolutely. There's probably you know, a multitude of reasons, but one really clear one is that there's been either disinvestment or lack of investment in public transit infrastructure, particularly in underserved communities all around the country. So if we take New York City as an example, the New York City subway system was really designed to get people into Manhattan, right? Which is the epicenter of the city. It's the canonical New York, quote unquote, that everyone knows of. But Manhattan is one of five boroughs in New York City. And for people who live in Queens, Brooklyn and the Bronx, these are areas where I, you know, I lived and, and where a lot of my friends and family, you know, hang out for many decades. We've had indirect commutes to get to work or to get to school or have simply just been dis- disenfranchised by the lack of public transit and access to it, you know, in the outer boroughs. So in short, all around the country, it's getting more and more expensive to live in the downtown area of every major city, right? Every every city has its own Manhattan, so to speak, right? And that's where everyone wants to live. It's certainly where the best jobs are, but because it's so expensive to live in these downtown areas, people live further and further away from the epicenter of the city. But unsurprisingly, the further out you get, the weaker the transportation, the public transit service becomes. So there lies why and how we have these transit deserts, even in cities as great as New York.
1: And I think it may be obvious to, to listeners, but uh, just elaborate a bit on the implications of this lack of, of mass transit options as you get further and further away from the, the Manhattans of any city. Sure.
0: Well, in two ways, the implications can be pretty significant. You know, I'll first talk about it on, like, on a personal level. You know, simply put, if you're living in a transit desert or if you're in a city where, you know, the bus system or the, or the subway or light rail just doesn't meet you where you are or doesn't take you where you need to go, you're going to end up having to either have a very indirect commute to get to your destination. So you have longer wait times, you're walking to get to some leg or some, some part of your commute. You're simply just spending more time in transit as opposed to productive time, at work or at school or at the hospital, wherever you need to go. So um, the impact on people is time wasted. It's frustration, you know, dealing with this type of commute. But it can also be, you know, a barrier to jobs and healthcare and educational opportunities. But if we step back, you know, and even think about it from a macro level, you know, there was a, a research study, I think by MIT a couple of years ago, Maybe I can share it with you in the audience uh, afterwards, but you know they found that the economic impact of transit deserts is remarkable. You know we are probably losing in the order of billions of dollars a year in productivity because people have to drive a car in traffic to get to work because they can't really rely on public transit in their neighborhoods. so that's. You know, more wear and tear on the roads, more money spent out of our own pockets just to commute. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, more time commuting as opposed to productive time. So, when you quantify these impacts as a society, we're really losing out on quite a bit of productivity as we endure these inefficient modes of transportation.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I can guess that number is tens of billions of dollars I've lost lost productivity, um, yeah. you know, a, a related kind of subsector within climate tech would be kind of electric scooters, let's say, right? So lot, lots of VC capital and, and interest or controversy over the last, you know, three to four years. What role could they have played? Do they play or should they not play in addressing transit uh, deserts, do you think?
0: I'd like to start by saying, for one, I'm a huge fan of electric scooters. And e-bikes. In fact, you know, while I'm, I'm becoming known as like the dollar van man here in New York now, and you know, maybe even outside, I, I literally ride City Bike here in New York multiple times a week to and from the office. But you know, I, I typically ride it when I get to about a mile or two miles away from the office. So I'm, I'm using a multimodal commute to get to and from work and i think that's an example of like where micro mobility with things like scooters and e-bikes can really play an integral role in how we get around the city but those things have their own limitations and constraints you know when it's super cold out or if you're in a cold climate like new york or anywhere in the northeast you'll be uh, <laughs> unlikely to be in a scooter on a scooter in january or february and you know similarly if you're someone who's Doing errands, you're carrying bags or groceries, you know, you're not going to hop on a bike or a scooter either. So I I think the main point here is that these things play a role, right? And they, they should have a place in our transportation, in the fabric of transportation in any city. But if scooters and e-bikes are the only hammer that we have, then everything, you know, will look like a nail. And we're certainly approaching this problem the wrong way. They are one tool in the tool belt. I like to give my respects to scooters. Uh, and I think there's a lot that we could learn from Bird and Lime and, and all the money that they've raised over the years. But, you know, they're just really one piece of the puzzle.
1: Well, I promise that question was not a setup <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to pit your solution against theirs. I can just imagine a lot of folks wondering that, that, that question. I think you said it well, which is kind of like, you know, we need them all, right? We need, we need, we need all the mass transit mobility solutions we have today, plus some more, which you are working on. Let's go there. So specifically, Dollar Ride, what is it? Paint, paint the picture in,
0: in detail. I'll talk a little bit about how we started and then where we're headed. So I think that will give people a full view of, of what the company does and what we're really trying to accomplish. You know, essentially, we started Dollar Ride a few years ago, basically launched in 2018 because we wanted to... Help people who lived in transit deserts find local dollar vans or commuter transit networks to get to school or to get to work or or whatever their destination was. And the company, including our name, was really inspired by dollar vans in New York City, which are a very interesting, unique phenomenon in New York where there's a network of commercial drivers who pick up and drop off passengers along fixed routes for as little as $2 a ride. Back in the day, like in the 80s and 90s, they used to be a dollar, hence the name Dollar Vans. So, you know, I, I grew up on Dollar Vans. My, my, my family, I had two uncles who were drivers back in the, in the late 80s. They now are fleet owners. But I, I got exposed to many aspects of this industry through my family, as well as being a rider of these services. So... You know, ultimately, I wanted to build a technology platform that brought the Uber and Lyft user experience to the dollar van ecosystem here in New York.
1: Mm-hmm. And my
0: theory was that if we can make accessing dollar vans more transparent more and, and smoother for riders and then also make it easier for drivers to grow their businesses by finding more passengers, then... You know, not only can we do good in the world, but this is actually a solution that would work in other geographies where there are similar informal transit networks. You know, dollar vans are not only a New York thing; they really reflect the phenomenon that's happening all around the world, particularly in the emerging markets where people are riding around in minibuses, oh yeah, or three wheelers, tuk and- yeah. tuks, tuk tuks, exactly, right? And that, and for, you know, for folks. In the global South or in the emerging markets, that is actually public transportation, not you know a subway system. So that was, that was my whole theory, right? Much of this was informed by my family. You know, my family's Nigerian. In Lagos, Nigeria, we have a similar informal transit network. It's called Danfo or Danfo Buses. And it's the same thing like Matatus or dollar vans here in New York. Long story short, we started out with a software program, basically helps drivers optimize their routes, find and serve more passengers, and then it provides a nice, cool, modern experience for passengers who are using an app to engage with the transportation service. We got a lot of traction off of that business model for the last three years. We were able to raise some venture capital to build and grow the company. But then my uncles and, and other fleet owners Began to complain to me about the cost of gas and its impact on their businesses. And then there's similar, you know, operational costs that they have, like insurance that continue to go up while their income doesn't necessarily go up as much. So, you know, just trying to be helpful, you know, I I started looking into these things. And long story short, I realized that if these informal transit drivers, some way, somehow, figured out how to get electric vehicles, they could really reduce their operational costs significantly and then reinvest that money into better equipment for their businesses, into proper insurance and and other things that would make them a more sustainable business, let alone no longer contribute to the increase in greenhouse gas emissions and all the other things that we're trying to get rid of with ICE vehicles. You know, I I just kind of got obsessed with the potential of electrifying informal transit through the eyes of a small business owner. That really represents where Dollar Ride is headed now. You know, we've already built software that we know optimizes a, a transit system, but now we wanna deal with the physical assets that these fleet owners are working with because that's where you can really make an impact on their net income and also have a, a bigger, broader impact on the environment.
1: Okay. So th- does that mean that you're kind of transitioning from you know something like an Uber a tech platform, you know, connecting the riders with the van slash fleet owners, right. to a model where you're what like helping to finance
0: perhaps EV van purchases or something? Yeah, that's correct. You know, basically the insight that I had that that led us in this direction was the fact that the first incarnation of our business when we were software first or software only we were processing all the payments for drivers so we already had a view into their cash flows and thus their ability to service debt so you know when i started seeing that okay not only is this a very is this a profitable venture for these drivers and fleet owners but there's clearly here enough margin for them to upgrade their vehicle and pay it off over time if there was the right lenders or financing scheme that really appealed to their needs. You know, unfortunately for a lot of small businesses, particularly if you are operating in a disadvantaged community or you're based in an underserved market, you might also have credit barriers. So it's not easy to, you know, get a car loan or get a loan to build and expand your business. So in essence, we thought that we could use the software that we had already built to give us some insight into underwriting these types of loans and then you know work with the supply chain to provide electric vehicles and charging infrastructure to the drivers who are forward thinking enough to want to you know get an electric vehicle and, and save save some costs as soon as possible
1: interesting uh, i wonder uh, have you heard of a company called uh, Nithio by chance no
0: i haven't actually tell me well, about well they're
1: them. they're not in your sector so that makes sense they came up on a prior phone call I just had, which was convenient. But they're serving the uh, off-grid energy market. So think like small solar home systems. I believe that's their focus. Maybe that's changed. But I bring them up because a lot of the the households in emerging markets, developing countries, pick pick your term. There's no credit score, right? So how do you how do you underwrite and finance a system, a solar home system? For those so, so they're helping to create kind of a a credit score of sorts to make those purchases that that lending easier. So that maybe just is a is an interesting thing to explore. Another one, there was a transaction between I think uh generate capital and uh, I believe BYD, where they they essentially would finance the batteries and let I think the, the towns purchase almost like the the market rate for a diesel bus and then generate capital would kind of fund the purchase of the battery portion or the battery premium, let's say, of those, uh, of the B-by-D buses. And then it became a, you know, a contracted cash flow with, you know, super awesome credit counterparties in that deal. Anyway, I'm kind of spitballing with you as if we're just talking one-on-one, but realizing <laughs> we're not talking one-on-one, I'm going to, I'm going to transition away from those
0: two other companies which came to mind. No worries. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll definitely follow up with you on those. I'd love to check out their businesses and, and learn more about what they're doing. It could be applicable to how Dollar is going to roll out our EV exactly. in the future. Yeah, no, no need to
1: reinvent every single wheel. All right. So transitioning to, uh, to making the purchase or, or really financing of electric vehicles easier, for these fleet lenders. All right, so pretty cool. What are some other barriers, do you think? Just chatting right now, I can I can feel how big this is potentially. Uh, but but every great business has has risks. What what do you see as the major
0: risks, and how, how do you all seek to mitigate those risks? Sure. Well, um, I mean, I think obviously there's financial risk. That's an easy one to point out. But you know, we are going to mitigate those risks by whenever we can actually connecting our fleet owners to jobs or to customers who are looking for transportation services, right? you know, commercially. And fortunately that was exactly what we were doing before we got involved with the physical hardware or, or, or assets in the first place. Mm. So um, there is a, a flywheel that we're working sure. through in, in our business that I think would really help us uh, electrify thousands of vehicles, you know, effectively, and, and provide a good return to the lenders that we'll be working with. But, you know, another risk that I think is, is noteworthy, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about how do I expand and grow this business, especially outside of New York. And, you know, it occurs to me that there, while there are dollar vans or things like dollar vans in other cities, providing dollar ride service to them is going to be the next chapter and challenge for my company. Thinking about how to scale is the next uh, frontier for us. Hmm. I have some pretty kooky ideas, but I don't think this is necessarily rocket science. On one end, the common through lines here are that we're dealing with small businesses and wherever you see it there being like a, an, a shuttle service at a hotel or an airport or an apartment complex, you know, those vehicles aren't owned by the hotel or the airport or the casino, there's a contract with that entity and a local small business who's providing that transportation service. You know, I imagine Dollaride having to create relationships with lots of different entities over time to build this like awareness that even as a small business owner with a small fleet, you can get on the path of electrification, you know, through Dollaride's platform. You know, we're still figuring out the scaling model, but certainly within the next Eighteen months, maybe two years, will demonstrate you know what we're doing in New York, but now in another city.
1: Yeah, you know, on that first point, the flywheel effect, where you know you're helping your borrowers to get more business to service their debt and then some, right? It's like you right. think about a normal a normal lender. Well, they're not helping you you create more more top line, right? That's your job, right? But in this case, you you are helping your borrower create more top line, which is pretty which is pretty cool. I mean, the scaling piece, I like what you said, like, it isn't rocket science. I mean, you have tech, right? Tech supersedes, you know, jumps over geographic boundaries all the time. And if you get a financing partner. Once you kind of decide what your mold is, your box, if you will, your criteria, they're probably on board, whether it's, you know, a borough in New York City or in Kansas City. Um, exactly. So anyway, I get the scaling piece. All right. and And maybe... Describe what, what these vehicles look like. I can't imagine what the, the various options are in EV or hybrid, I was going to say minibus, that's the wrong f- phrase, van or commercial vehicle. Like Who makes these vehicles today that are the kind of
0: best fit for your model? So Yeah, this is a, a good question and it should be pretty fun to talk through. So the good news is for the type of lead owner that we work with right now, there's like a handful of models vehicle models that they usually work with. So, you know, I can just describe it. I'm sure the audience here will, this will resonate with them. You know, usually we're, we're dealing with a Ford E450 or a Ford E350. And it's the type of shuttle bus vehicle that you would find when you're at, a, at an airport and you're taking the shuttle, the shuttle service at an airport, maybe to the, the rental car station or to the parking lot right from the gate. Those shuttle, those shuttle buses that are, you know, serving the airport, they're typically a Ford vehicle that seats anywhere from 12 to 20 passengers, you know, with enough space for luggage or what have you. That's the most common type of vehicle in the commuter van industry here in New York. And that vehicle is also popularly used at casinos, you know, for shuttle services between large apartment buildings or apartment complexes, you know, and the same thing for hotels. So uh, you have that. And then you also have like uh, the common sprinter van vehicle, which might seat like 14 passengers or so. Mercedes has a pretty nice sprinter and there's the Mm -hmm. Ford Transit, right? Those are the models that are most popular. But the bad news is that there is no electric version of any of those models for a passenger business coming from the OEMs, from Ford, GM, Chevrolet, none of them. None of them have an electric version coming off the assembly line. We all expect that maybe by 2025, those particular models will have an electric version. And that will actually be great for my business and my company because it should be cheaper to buy that EV right from the OEM than what what we're doing now, which is you know, taking the base vehicle, which is still an ICE vehicle or a gas powered vehicle, and then upfitting it or, or converting it into an electric vehicle, using some other partners. So that's really what we're dealing with now when it comes to the supply of vehicles. There are there just really isn't enough of them off the assembly line, but hopefully within the next three years, that'll change.
1: Well, I have a thousand questions on what you just said. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> we'll cover just a few. I had written the word down, a ret- like retrofit. Do you need to or have to? And the answer is yes. Yeah. I-, I couldn't picture what exa- like, w- which manufacturers are making this. Your partners who do the conversion, let's say, is that like public information or is that like secret sauce? It's not public information yet because we're
0: still okay, we'll leave it Negotiating there. and choosing. But I can talk about at least what they do. Yeah, uh, go for it. Yeah. They are great partners. But yeah, long story short, there's a, within like the supply chain, there's a a type of company called Upfitter. And basically what they do is they retrofit a vehicle from a gas-powered engine into an electric vehicle by replacing the engine with a electric powertrain and batteries. So you basically go from this engine and, you know, set of pieces that has like thousand plus parts right in a nice in vehicle to an electric version which is a lot simpler and has I think maybe 200 or fewer parts so there are companies that really deal with that whole conversion process and you know they you know have factories and facilities where they're doing this stuff on an assembly line and you know through labor they're trying to convert as many as they possibly can but indeed, Because you're still dealing with a base vehicle uh, or a chassis from an ICE vehicle, you have two steps of cost that you have to pay for. You're buying that base vehicle, whether it's new or used, and then you're now paying for the retrofit, which is going to include the batteries, the powertrain, and then the labor for the conversion. The end result is a a more expensive vehicle than than if it was coming off, off the assembly line straight from the OEM.
1: Okay, well, the story keeps getting more interesting here, Sue, <laughs> because now, now you have the tech, right, to connect the rider and the driver, and you're moving to, to control slash facilitate the underwriting and financing, two different things, and now you're telling me slash the whole audience <laughs> that yep. it, there's more secret sauce, right, where it, it, you, you can't just buy these things You've got to buy and reconfigure as well. And I, I can imagine if you, depending on the nature of those relationships with these, did you say upfitters? Was that the right term?
0: Yeah, upfitters yeah. or EV conversion companies. Yeah. Anyway, it,
1: it, it gets to be a story where there are a few others that can so easily copy, right? Replicate because it's, it's kind of three, three sources of value add or uniqueness, I think. Is that right?
0: yeah I, th- I think so trust me i i would I would love for our value proposition to be a lot simpler right and make my job a lot easier. but you know I think the the truth of the matter is that we're in a an age of this energy transition where our supply chain for electric vehicles and charging infrastructure is just not fully there yet right there's there are a lot of things that are still developing so even if we are aggressive at getting off of fossil fuels and ye- leveraging clean energy in transportation, we're still going to be cobbling together solutions with the best tools and things that we have today. So that's what I look at Ride as right now. You know, I'm sure that in the future, when the OEMs get their act together and they, you know, they got production up to meet demand with, with EVs and all the different models that the public wants, that'll make things easier for me. But until then, you know, we're literally building our own supply chain of vendors and partners who can help us create a great product solution for our fleet owners. And um, as complicated as it is, it's my job at Dollaride to at least make it appear simple to the end customer. So, you know, what we're going to show them is sort of like the Wizard of Oz. They only see the the nice stuff instead of the real magic that's happening behind the, the curtain.
1: Well, yeah. And, and to be clear to the listeners, I wouldn't describe what you're doing as cobbling together or necessarily complicated, but more differentiated, right? Three things you're yeah. doing that are unique out there. And, and to your point about uh, making it simple for the for the users, but it's complicated back here. There, there's that fun analogy of the, the duck on the pond where the duck looks super chill, you know, above water, but underground, those feet are moving like a million miles an hour, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what we should, should all strive for, perhaps. Hey, let's switch, as we do at the end of all of our podcasts, from the business to the person here. So, Sue, uh, imagine you're talking to your younger self. Give us some advice you might pass along to be uh, more
0: productive, happier on this journey. The advice I would have given my younger self I think the two most important things actually would have been to start earlier, whatever that entrepreneurial dream or idea was, the earlier you start, the better. And although, I, you know, I started building companies at 27, maybe 26, you know, I wasn't too old, but I mean, gosh, if I could have gone back and like started at 21, like right. when I was in college, I, it'd be a completely different game. So, plus one, plus um, one. I, I hear you. Yeah. So that, that's one thing I would have, I wish I that was advice that I got or encouragement I got much earlier on. And the second thing is treating your physical health and staying in shape just as seriously as you're treating your business. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I'm still in pretty good shape, but I it's see. not, you know, because I, I like work on a ton. I think I'm just like pretty lucky genetically. And I did work out an enormous amount back in college. And in my early years, I, I used to play football at Boston College. Mm-hmm. So it has like those residual effects. But the main point here is that, you know, you feel a lot better about everything you're doing if you're just in better shape and how you feel physically, you know, and your health directly contributes to your aptitude in business and in developing a company, which has so many different, you know, trials and tribulations and challenges. So the least you can do is be in like great physical shape, you know, because I think it's good for your, your mental well-being, right? Your, your mental health. But it'll also translate into you having more energy, you know, you just being in a better mood more often, which should, you know, should translate into better results in your company.
1: It's true. Agree with all that. I think one of the ways it shows up is that if you take care of yourself really well, probably when you're in those investor meetings, right, in those customer meetings, you're showing up on the edge of your seat, you know, with with energy, enthusiasm, power in your voice. Because the opposite, right, m- might convey the feelings you don't want the person on the other side of that Zoom call or, or, or table to feel. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, that, that relates to the next question, which is um, describe a few uh, daily or maybe weekly habits, Sue, so that keep you healthy, sane, and focused.
0: Every day I walk, I guess you can say an hour every day, I'm not sure what the mileage is or how many steps, but it's a lot. But essentially I'm, I walk my kids to school and it's a, it's a half hour trip. Thank you. Half hour trip back and forth to the house or to the home office. But that, you know, I've, I've learned to really relish that time. And now it's a routine. It's something that I like to do. I was actually fighting with my wife earlier today, not fighting, but like we had a little bit of a, a little tiff. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I offered to pick the kids up in the afternoon uh, which is something that she usually does, but you know, I was glad to offer it because I actually like that time walking to the to the daycare and coming back. Yeah, and you know, it, yeah, so it's, it's 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 part of my routine now, and I think it's helpful because it gives me a chance to get away from the computer and you know think more freely as I'm walking the kids to school, or even if I want to just get my mind off of work, I can just you know talk to them and play with them as I'm as I'm walking them to school. But nonetheless getting out of the office, away from the computer, and walking is really clearing in terms of my mind. And um, you know, I've found it to be also thought-provoking because that's usually when I come up with my best ideas.
1: There is research out there, right, which validates just what you said, that uh, a lot of our best ideas come when we're moving, not when we're sitting. And I mean, I guess I forget the kind of nature of that reasoning, but at the simplest form, we're We're circulating our blood and therefore oxygen more efficiently uh, yeah, during sure. that process. I think a lot of a lot of great thinkers and philosophers used to swear by the power of having good ideas while walking, so you're you're in good company. The piece about walking your kids to school again love that i I walk them into school to their classroom as long as holding their hand as long as they would let me for, <laughs> for, for my three but but also a good a good um A balance, I should say, right? Like, if things are stressful at work, you're hanging out with your kids. You're like, oh yeah, right. Like, what's going to be important to me for like decades? It's certainly my kids, and maybe it's
0: the business, but definitely it's definitely it's the family. Totally. One of my like little tricks when I'm on the phone in business meetings, whether it's trying to close a deal, talking to investors, or even just having like a difficult conversation with someone, I often take that phone call standing and I'll like pace around the house or pace in my backyard while I'm on the call. And I I've, I don't know why, but I found that like, I'm just maybe a better communicator when I'm walking and talking and I'm just more dynamic, just more into the conversation when I can walk around and pace, you know, with the headphones in while I'm taking the call. So I don't know if there's any research about that, but <laughs> it certainly feels like uh uh, I feel like I'm in a position of power if I can walk and talk while while on these, you know, kind of high pressured calls. Well, the question I want to ask you is,
1: when you're standing up, are you doing the Wonder Woman pose, you know? <laughs> 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 For more power. Yeah, I hear you. I'm a pacer uh, as well, whenever I'm on the phone versus, uh, versus Zoom. Let's kind of wrap here, uh, Sue, with a couple more. One is, can you recommend uh, a book or or podcast, or quote that you think the the listeners should maybe uh, uh, pick up?
0: Yeah, actually, I was listening to a podcast this weekend, and I was just so impressed by this one specific episode. It's called The Break. It's a a Streets Blog podcast. So that's the name of the podcast. And the specific episode actually came out a few weeks ago. And yeah, well, it came out on, on August 23rd. It's called Why Arguments Against Free Transit Are Missing the Point. And it's uh, an interview with Dr. Destiny Destiny Thomas. Mm. She makes some excellent, excellent points about how our lens for evaluating the needs of public transit riders and the communities that public transit serves is completely narrow. You know, it's, it's too narrow. And instead, we need to use a different framework for um, deciding how should we invest in public transit and, you know, which people should benefit the most. You know, she really gave some great arguments. I don't want to like ruin it for any of the listeners who are curious, but this is the first time I really heard a great assembly of reasons why, you know, free transportation, free public transportation is something that we could accomplish but it's going to take a completely different set of inputs in order for us to achieve that goal. But it's a worthy goal to pursue because transit freedom or or tr- and transit equity is actually a net positive to our to our society and to businesses. Mm. So um, it's worth us really rethinking how do we how do we fund public transportation, you know, from a first principle standpoint. So yeah, I'm I'm a real big fan now of the long and and uh, Dr. Destiny, Th- Destiny Thomas because of that episode.
1: Well, I love that, uh, A, that you were finding this episode real time on the podcast, perfect, and how specific <laughs> it is, right? Uh, that's the first for both. So anyway, love, love that you're keeping it real there. All right, f- final thing, Sue, thousands of folks are listening. Who do you want to hear from most and how
0: do they find you? Well, I'd love to hear from climate tech investors, and family offices, people who work in family offices, or folks who are part of green banks. You know, essentially, as my company grows, uh, we're gonna need more access to capital. And, you know, I think we have not only a a great business, but a business model that really does have a double, if not triple, bottom line. So um, I love to chat with folks who are, you know, on the other side of the table, investing in entrepreneurs. And we'd love to you know, start those conversations with folks who are interested.
1: Well, here, here. Sounds like three differentiators for something that's that's pretty scalable. Uh, Sue, glad you're glad you're working on it with some uh, firepower from New York State. Hey, uh, rooting for your success
0: at Dollarad, man. Talk soon. Thank you, Chris. It was my pleasure, and you know, I look forward to coming back again soon once we have uh, these electric vehicles on the road. Here, here. Hey
1: there, it's Chris again. If you want more intel on climate tech, startups, and investors, please join the thousands of other founders, investors, and world changers who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you took 90 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcast or give us a five-star rating on Spotify. This feedback is the number one way to draw more attention to the inspiring climate CEOs and investors I get to interview here. All right, until next time, keep on fighting the good fights.